Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up? This is your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Weird House Cinema. This is Rob Lamb. And this is Joe McCormick. And uh, Rob, we got one of your your famous calendar tie-ins today uh, because (laughs) today is a Friday the 13th. We are finally doing a Friday the 13th movie. And uh, of of the original series, what could we pick except Jason Takes Manhattan, the one where Jason goes to New York years after the Muppets did. (laughs) Now, a lot of times on this show... We dig up obscure weirdness that not many people have ever seen, uh, and uh, sometimes the sometimes we find the the diamonds that are hidden. You know, wonderful little gems of movies that are that are little known. Sometimes we find stuff that is not so great but funny. In this series, we're going in a very different direction because, as weird as the Friday the Thirteenth series is, and if you really like examine the contents of the the series, it it is a bizarre phenomenon. We should not forget that these movies were immensely popular. These hockey mask horror movies made hundreds of millions of dollars in total, which is a lot for a horror franchise. And I believe until uh, maybe just recently, Friday the 13th, a movie about a guy in a hockey mask who walks around stabbing people, was the highest grossing horror franchise of all time. And, you know, Rob, you and I as uh, horror fans probably have 
different types of movies we think of when we consider the genre as an ideal. What is horror? Maybe some of your your favorite, maybe the classier horror movies come to mind. But in the general culture, for decades, from the 80s, probably through the 2000s, if you said horror as a genre, I would say the average American would be more likely to think of Friday the 13th and Jason Voorhees than anything else. Yeah, these movies were big money. Uh, they were everywhere. Um, and And I think you know, to your point about about weirdness, um, just as we have to remind ourselves that that very popular things can still be very good, very popular movies can still be quite weird in in a number of ways. Yeah, and with these uh, Friday the Thirteenth films in particular, I think it's very easy to either absorb them through pop culture or cable viewing, and just allow it all to be sort of refined down to just the the core scares, the kills, and each film's sort of physical incarnation of Jason Voorhees. But there's there's a load of additional funky weirdness that absolutely should not be overlooked in, in many, if not all, of the films. Yeah, so are the Friday the 13th movies Good, uh, not really. Are they? Are they classy? Certainly not. I mean, they, they, I think they they meet the definition of trash by by pretty much anybody's standard. But are they kind of interesting to watch and talk about, especially when you think about their place in the culture? Absolutely. Yeah. I, I, I the, the thing about the Friday the Thirteenth films is that I I grew up hearing about them from other kids, like in elementary school. Though I didn't see them, but but mm-hmm. this is one of the things that, that was talked about. Certain kids had the lore, had the knowledge, and they would share with the others. And and I do remember later catching parts of them on late night TV during, I guess, late elementary, early middle school. Uh, my family lived in the country for part of this, very close to a large lake, in fact. So, so frankly, these films, uh, and, and, and they were all Crystal Lake episodes, uh, installments that I was catching parts of at this this time, uh, they terrified me because Jason seemed very much like this creature of the woods and the wilds that could potentially emerge out of the dark at any moment uh, in the darkness surrounding my house. Oh, absolutely. He is one of the, he, he is a nature spirit. He, you know, he is Bjorn or he's like Radagast the Brown. He's like one of these figures that belongs to the trees and the critters. Uh, he, he's kind of a, he's kind of a, uh, a murderous Tom Bombadil. <laughs> Um, so, you know, I, I think that maybe the, uh, my, my childhood fear or, and, and certainly maybe apprehensions concerning this character, uh, maybe they bled over into my adult life as well, because prior to this week, the only Friday the 13th film that I'd actually sat down and watched from beginning to end was 2001's Jason X, which of course is awesome. Uh, obviously a late franchise detour. And uh, when you, you picked Jason Takes Manhattan, I was like, okay, I'm, I'm definitely going to watch this one, obviously. But since this one's also kind of a, a detour, obviously it styles itself as a detour, I was mm-hmm. like, okay, I need to watch another one as well. Uh, the, the Blu-ray disc that I rented from Videodrome here in Atlanta had part seven, uh, The New Blood, on it as well. So I decided to give that one a go. So I, I watched two Friday the 13th films this week in preparation for this discussion. I'm going to go ahead and say that I think part seven is a better movie than the one we're talking about today, uh, pretty much hands down. But I think uh, part eight is a more appropriate pick because of how uh, bizarrely it upsets the formula while still being incredibly predictable. <laughs> yeah, I, I really enjoy both of them. Um, I mean, because New Blood, you have Tina, the telekinetic gal, yeah. um, you know, uh, whipping butt. 
uh, in the, the the final portion of the film anyway. Uh-huh. Um, I think there's some shared DNA between these two films. Uh, but while the first one was was definitely a Crystal Lake movie, this one takes us to Manhattan. And well, I mean, that's, the, that's the cell anyway, right? It sort of does. So one of the famous things about Jason Takes Manhattan is, I was watching it with Rachel and she had a pretty good one. She said... Uh, she sometimes calls it Jason takes a long time to get to Manhattan, uh, which, yeah, uh, uh, you could also call it Jason takes boat. This movie has something in common with Eliminators, which we did, uh, I don't know, maybe a month or two ago, uh, a movie that you think is going to be about a, a mandroid, a scientist, a mercenary, a ninja out there uh, getting in fights and stuff. And they do that a little bit. But really what the movie mostly is, is about a boat. It's about a boat going up a river. And that's the same thing here. You think Jason's going to take Manhattan. He gets there in the last 15 minutes or so. The rest of the movie is a boat. Yeah, but the, but the last 15 minutes or so is really strong. Uh, and, and we'll get to that. Well, I guess the secondary critique is also when he gets to Manhattan, it's mostly not actually Manhattan, but Vancouver. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. The, the There's a lot of... Uh, Canadianness uh, to this film, and certainly in the cast, uh, so that'll be fun to talk about in a bit. But, but hey, we should slow down here because first of all, I'm not an expert on this genre. I've only seen the three films and then bits and pieces stitched together through my my childhood cable viewing. Um, and also the audience out here, not everyone out there really knows the full history, the full mythos of Jason Voorhees. Joe, can you uh, give us a a previously on Friday the Thirteenth uh, walkthrough here? Oh, yes, I can. Maybe I'll start with some some general thoughts and then go movie by movie. So okay. the, the first thing I would say is that the Friday the 13th series begins as a ripoff of Halloween, as basically all <laughs> modern slasher franchises do. Yeah. So you had, you had uh, John Carpenter's Halloween, which is actually a great movie, uh, but it gave rise to all of these copycat series, which are about a guy with a mask and a knife chasing people around, usually uh, usually young, attractive people who are up to no good, chasing them around and killing them one by one. But most of these follow-up series have major differences from Halloween, one of which is that they're just generally not as good as filmmaking products. You know, they don't have that visual flair. But another thing is that when you watch Halloween, it is a great experience of, of heightened suspense. You know, it, it's like you, you are deeply worried for the fates of the characters and you want them to escape Michael Myers. You know, he's chasing them around and you're on the edge of your seat. This is less the case with the series that follow, uh, where I would say the tension is notably lower. And I would say most audience members are far going to be far less concerned about the fates of the characters who Jason is chasing around. You're just not that upset when Wayne in this movie gets thrown into a circuit board or whatever. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's one of the, the hallmarks of, of, of the, the franchise, isn't it? That you have certain types of, of victims yeah. Uh, and, and we see this beyond Friday the 13th as well. But there are characters that we're clearly either supposed to morbidly want uh, Jason to kill mm-hmm. um, or that we're less less concerned with. You know, there's some there definitely there's definitely some fodder uh, in any of these films. There are a number of kills that have to you have to sort of get them out of the way, hopefully creatively, before you move on to your your final girl and uh, some of the, uh, the, 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 the later survivors. Right. And so that's another common element of these slasher movies is they will usually have a main character often referred to in the literature as the final girl, (laughs) who is typically a cut above the other characters in terms of virtues, like whereas all of the other characters 
are kind of uh, dumb and mean and just want to uh, w- want to do bad. The final mm-hmm. girl is usually presented as more virtuous in some way. Yeah, yeah, because you, you almost inevitably have the bad girl earlier on who gets yeah. killed. Oh, wait a minute. Okay, so I should actually recap the movie. So, warning, there are going to be spoilers for about seven movies uh, in, in a moment <laughs> here. But, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't, I mean, are you really that concerned about what happens at the end of the Friday the 13th movies? No, no. Okay, so the first movie establishes the premise. You have counselors at Camp Crystal Lake. This is a summer camp on a lake. Uh, the, the counselors are pretty much, as always, like uh, young, good-looking people who like drugs and promiscuity. Mm-hmm. So throughout the first movie, these counselors are attacked and killed by uh, an unknown assailant, somebody whose whose face is hidden. But then at the very end of the movie, there's kind of a twist because you get a, a little bit of Jason lore. There are stories of a boy who drowned in the lake years ago, uh, but maybe he's still out there. Uh, but at the end of the movie, the killer is actually revealed to be Mrs. Voorhees, played by an actress named Betsy Palmer, whose son Jason drowned in the lake years ago because the camp counselor were partying instead of paying attention when the children were swimming. And so she's on a, on a uh, psychotic quest of revenge. And at the end of the movie, Mrs. Voorhees is beheaded by the final girl. And then we also get that, that scene, right, where Jason, uh, the child mutant or zombie, like jumps out of the lake and pulls somebody out of a boat, right? Like this is a, this is a great sequence and is frequently referenced or celebrated in isolation online. Uh, so I think and it's actually been a while since I've seen the first movie, but I think this is presented or, or at least perhaps interpreted as a dream or a vision. Okay. So the final girl has survived the ordeal. She cuts off the killer's head and then she's like floating in a boat on the lake. And then there's this horrible vision of, of the kid popping out of the lake at her. But uh, I don't know if that's I don't think it's supposed to be taken as something that literally happens. Okay, but it's still it's good going into our discussion of Jason Takes Manhattan that yes, that dreams, hallucinations, visions are part of the franchise from the get go. So what 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 can you do in the second movie? The killer was beheaded at the end of the first one. Well, actually, uh, second movie says scratch all that. Jason is not dead. He is now <laughs> a grown man and he runs around murdering camp counselors, still in his alive state, wearing a bag over his head, and he worships a shrine containing his mother's severed head from the first movie. It's got like candles all around it. Oh wow! I don't think I've seen this one, but this all sounds really solid. Even yeah. if Jason has not really finalized uh, his uh, his headwear situation just yet. Oh, yeah. So the hockey mask is not here yet. It's a sack, sack head for this one. Um, you know, I'm going to say in my personal taste, like the second and third movies, I don't know if they're silly enough to, to achieve the maximum uh, fun of this series yet. That happens more once it gets supernatural. We're not there yet. Okay. So third movie, uh, Jason's back. He runs around murdering people, hanging out at Crystal Lake, except in this movie, he trades the bag over his head for a hockey mask, which was, I believe, brought along to the lake just by one of the characters. There's just like a Joker guy who's into practical jokes and pranks, and he brings along a hockey mask. Jason is like, yoink, I will take that. (laughs) And he wears it for the entire rest of the series. Well, as we dis- I think we discussed this in one of our past Halloween episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, that like the hockey mask is, is great on so many levels because it kind of looks like a skull. It kind of looks like a death's head. Yeah. 
And uh, I, I don't know if you if you know the answer to this, but I've often wondered, like, where, why did they switch to the hockey mask? Like, I wonder, is it a response to 1981's The Road Warrior, which features this villain named Lord Humongous, who's super beefy and wears a hockey mask? Um, I'm, I'm also aware that there are some horror and exploitation predecessors involving hockey masks. Uh, Alone in the Dark, uh, which is a very interesting looking film, came out the same year as Part 3. But then there's also a non-slasher exploitation film titled Acts of Vengeance from 74 that incorporated a hockey mask. So I, I don't personally know like where this really came from. Hmm. Uh, I, I don't know either. Um, no idea really. All right. Well, you, any of you uh, Friday the Thirteenth buffs out there who, uh, if you have an answer or just a theory, certainly write in and let us know. Oh, oh, and I forgot to mention a major feature of the third movie, which is that it is Friday the Thirteenth Part Three D. So it's in three oh. D, <laughs> and there are glorious scenes of people like holding a coffee mug out toward the camera or poking a clothesline uh, uh, pole toward the camera or like popcorn popping out of a pot toward the camera. It's it's riveting stuff. Anyway, so uh, third movie, I think at the end of this, the final girl hits him in the head with an axe. So, oh, Jason, is he dead? Well, nope. Uh, he comes back in the fourth movie. Uh, mad slasher behavior continues. But this time, Jason goes up against a character named Tommy Jarvis, a child played by Corey Feldman, <laughs> who his main character trait is he enjoys making Tom Savini monster masks. That's like okay. his hobby. And so, uh, oh, and the fourth movie also has Crispin Glover in it. But Jason ah. just, yeah, Jason just runs around attacking misbehaving teens. And then at the end of the movie, Corey Feldman uh, whacks him in the head with a machete. So he's dead. Okay, dead. The end. But I mean, he's been whacked in the head with an axe before. So I don't know what's different <laughs> about this time. I guess it's that you kind of see the machete like chop off basically an entire half of his head. Okay, so severe blow to the brain. Gotcha. Uh, the fifth movie, Jason, seems to be back and doing his thing once again. Uh, this this movie features the adult, the grown-up version of Corey Feldman's character from the previous movie. This is a guy named Tommy Jarvis. Uh, so uh, Jason is like chasing Tommy Jarvis and his new friends around, terrorizing them. But in the end, spoiler alert, uh, it turns out this is a movie about a copycat killer. There is some complete rando named Roy who dresses up like Jason, puts on a hockey mask, and he is the killer in this movie. Okay, I don't think I've seen anything from this one, but that sounds like a huge letdown. I don't know. Part 5 is, I would say, very funny. I'd say of all of them, it is one of the trashiest. It mm. feel, This one feels really grimy. Um, but, but, but after the fifth one, okay, what do you do now? So you, you, Jason got his head chopped in half. Uh, we already did copycat in the previous movie. How are we going to go for a sixth one? Time to introduce magic. Yes. So in films two through four, Jason was just a human, just a mad slasher guy who was surprisingly resilient to counterattack. Part six, the series goes supernatural. Jason's body rises from the grave. He puts on the hockey mask again, and he attacks adult Tommy Jarvis. And so this movie ends with Tommy Jarvis doing some kind of ritual where he chains Jason to a rock at the bottom of Crystal Lake. Problem solved. Uh, there's a scene in this movie where Jason attacks an RV, which is uh, an interesting set piece. But another thing about this is not only does the sixth movie introduce magic into the series i would say the sixth movie also is the first to introduce a palpable sense of irony 
Like mm. the sixth one is the first one that gets directly silly and has sort of uh, uh, jokes about itself for the viewer. Okay, so it's become yeah, it's become a, a, a little bit funny and play intentionally funny in places, and now we have Jason as a revenant. Uh, so so really, would you say the sixth movie is where we we finally arrive at sort of the iconic Jason? Yes, I would mostly say that, though I think it needs one more element, which is the actor playing Jason. Oh, the yes. canonical Jason actor, Kane Hodder, actually doesn't show up till the seventh movie in the series. <laughs> so here we are at part seven, and the premise is, whoops, a girl with psychic powers accidentally causes undead Jason to escape his chain trap at the bottom of the lake. He once again attacks the sinful youth in the lakeshore vicinity until he is defeated by the psychic powers of uh, the final girl in this movie, Tina, and by the ghost of a father's love. And at the end of part <laughs> seven, he is yanked back under the water by uh, by the main character's uh, dead dad, and he lies waiting there at the bottom of the lake until the beginning of part eight. This movie ruled. I, I loved it. I especially loved Tina. It was just an absolute pleasure to watch her hit Jason with something like a dozen telekinetic home alones. You know, yes, it's like yeah. nails flying at him, wrapping him up in something like the making the floor open up. Just mm. I loved everything about uh, that whole showdown. Uh, she's hitting him with like uh, like power lines. Part seven also has so it's the first one with Kane Hodder. Uh, we can talk more about the Jason uh, body actors in a bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, but part seven also has really solid human villains. Uh, yes. A couple worth mentioning are most of these movies have a character who's like the rich mean girl in part seven. It's a character I think named Melissa, who is just a uh, uh, pricelessly cruel. Uh, and then also there is another human villain who is played by Terry Kaiser. He is Tina's evil scheming psychiatrist. And yes. uh, so this is the, the, the corpse from weekend at Bernie's, but he's like <laughs> constantly like uh, threatening and bullying the main character. Yeah, when you first uh, mentioned this, I thought you were saying metaphorically that this is the the actor that is uh, the guy from Weekend at Bernie's. But yeah, it is. It's Terry Kaiser. Yeah, he's um, literally the body in that movie is the evil psychiatrist here. Yeah, and I feel like this is a great. This is always a great formula for a horror movie when you have your true, like even supernatural or just super, like super humanly um evil character but then you have your more like real world villain who's operating within a system uh, such as this guy well yeah this could i mean this is one of those uh movie tropes of like uh the the evil scientist who Mm -hmm. uh you know i i guess he thinks he's finally gonna get tenure if he like drives this girl mad and and makes her like uh use her telekinesis to make the house explode (laughs) Yeah, so he's great. And yeah, I, I just, I love Tina. I think part of the reason I love Tina is because you have your final girl standing up to, like, fully standing up to Jason and yeah. not just, like, you know, weakly hitting him with something and then not having the courage to go over and finish him off. Like, she she goes for blood and she she just unleashes with her brain. Like, she uses yeah. brain power to overcome the darkness. And, the, yeah, like, there's something empowering about that. You know, it's like, you know, it takes me back to this idea of being a child and being scared of these things and these ideas, but also knowing that you could scream at them, you know, that you could raise your voice and, in a sense, fight them with your brain. Um, 
So I'd seen parts of this before, and I remember loving the parts I'd seen, but I had no idea that the ending was so bonkers. I had it in my mind that she was probably going to defeat Jason by just uh, you know, telekinetically wrapping him up in a chain and blasting him off the, the wharf, that sort of thing. But this whole scene where she uses her powers to resurrect the uncorrupted body of her dead father from the bottom of Crystal Lake to mm-hmm. drag him back into the depths... Still wearing a cardigan. Yes, still wearing a cardigan. Absolutely bonkers. I love everything about it. Yeah. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. Rob, as the uh, the local host with allergies here, they sent you some of their nasal spray to treat your allergies. What was your experience like? Yeah, that's right. I always wrestle with the pollen a bit when it rolls in during the spring. So they sent me the little uh, nasal spray. I tried out the product and yeah, it sure did help me get on top of my symptoms for the day. And it's so fast acting. Uh, it was already kicking in before I left the house. Astapro is a first-of-its-kind nasal allergy spray. It's the fastest 24-hour over-the-counter allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes, while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray. Astapro delivers full prescription-strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. Get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount so you can get Astapro and go today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com. Astapro and go. Uses directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road, the steeper the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones so we'll never lose touch with civilization and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic and conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.
Today, I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig for details. You know, you mentioned the idea of defeating Jason with your mind. And so uh, now that we've laid out these movies, I feel like there is a point I, I was wanting to touch on about what, like, what are these movies for? Why were they so popular? This is something like film mm-hmm. critics of the 1980s would write about. You can read articles of, you know, Roger Ebert and everybody else uh, just saying, like, I don't get it. I go and watch these movies. I review them. They're terrible. And the theaters are just packed with teenagers who are just shrieking with delight about these movies. And they're selling God knows how many tickets they're making huge amounts of money and the, the the teens love these movies. What is it they're seeing about this garbage? And in thinking about it, I, I think that these movies offer something kind of different than like a, a traditional, uh, like a good horror movie in the traditionally understood sense does like, uh, so you watch Halloween or another good horror movie and you're, you're feeling suspense and you get that endorphin rush and it's like an exciting experience and you come out of it on the other side and you're like, Whoa, okay. Uh, uh, but in these movies, you never really reach that peak of like high suspense. Like just the fact that it's a movie about ludicrous, gratuitous violence, but it's not really fully scary and you can laugh at it, I think is empowering, especially when you're like 18 years old. I remember having that feeling watching these movies around that age. Yeah. Yeah. And, oh, and and I do have to say, I don't want to go on and on about this, but but turning on the television late at night and just finding yourself within one of these films, having no idea, ability to double check to see if it is a Jason movie, just yeah. just having to go with it and then seeing if he shows up. There was something kind of weirdly voyeuristic and and uh, and haunting about that experience. Yeah. All right. So that sets us up for up for this film. We brought everyone up to the level of Jason Takes Manhattan. We've put you in a position where you can follow Jason in his attempt to take Manhattan. And that's the elevator pitch. It's Jason Takes Manhattan. What more could he possibly want to know? All right, for our uh, for our, our trailer here, uh, so this is actually one where I feel like we need to describe the trailer because it doesn't completely translate to audio only. So I'm going to tell you what, what you would be seeing whilst you uh, you know listen to this so we're going to start with some some gentle uh, you know new yorky music some saxophone playing in there we see a figure on the waterfront back to the camera gazing dreamily at the island of manhattan resplendent in its glittering lights what dreams does this figure have broadway wall street love fame a morning at the met an afternoon in central park who can say but we zoom in closer And then the figure turns, and it's Jason Voorhees, hockey mask, weapon in hand, instantly cut to various New York City folks screaming and recoiling in terror. And then we zoom in again on the great hockey mask of death and judgment. The camera goes into the dark eye of the mask, and we get the title card, Jason Takes Manhattan, and some great voiceover from the voice of God himself, Don LaFontaine. 
part eight. Jason takes Manhattan. Now, New York has a new problem. It's great. You see, like, uh, I think at one point you see somebody who reads as a hot dog vendor, like <laughs> throwing hot dogs up in the air in terror. Am I remembering mm-hmm. that right? I think so. Yeah. It's a yeah. bunch of like, like, you know, Jason POV stuff. Yeah. Uh, but it's great. It's essentially just a teaser trailer, but it, it absolutely tells you everything you need to know. You know, also in terms of marketing for the movie, have you ever seen that clip of uh, Jason Voorhees as the guest on the Arsenio Hall show? <laughs> yes. It's it's really good. I think it was promoting this movie, right, for Jason Takes Manhattan. I believe so, yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it's not like Kane Hodder as himself as the actor. Jason Voorhees in character is the guest. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I get, again, I think this speaks to like – the surprisingly like mainstream level popularity of these movies that like Jason would be booked as a like late night talk show guest. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the clip is worth looking up. Uh, Arsenio just like asks him questions. I think he asks him like, why are you so angry? And Jason of course says nothing in response. He just sits in the chair holding an ax. <laughs> well, that is a question to ask in a bit. Is Jason angry? Is this a, even an appropriate question, Arsenio? I think that varies by movie. Hmm. All right, let's get into the humans behind this thing. Uh, first of all, the director and writer, Rob Hedden, born 1954, American director, making his feature film debut here following a 1985 documentary about Terry Gilliam's Brazil and various episodes of Alfred Hitchcock Presents, MacGyver, and, weirdly enough, Friday the 13th, the series. Uh, some listeners have uh, recommended this series to us, by the way. Now, Friday the 13th, the TV series was not about Jason Voorhees. It no. was about what? What? It was about like an antique shop that sold cursed items or something. Yeah, and they had to go like reclaim them. It was episodic, but uh, I don't think I've ever actually watched an episode in full. Uh, but it's is if memory serves, it's very Canadian, and David Cronenberg directed one episode of it. You know, I keep saying this, but someday on Weird House, we're going to have to come around to the TV show Freddy's Nightmares, which was an episodic TV series, not about Freddy Krueger, but like hosted by Freddy Krueger. Like they were trying to turn Freddy into the Crypt Keeper. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he's a perfect, I don't, I remember when it came out. Weirdly, I wasn't a big Nightmare fan and I was a little afraid of those films too. But I was all in on Freddy's Nightmares, you know, because here it was, it was on TV, it was episodic, uh, you know, I mean, it was an, it was an anthology series, rather. And, uh, and it also seemed like a great gig for, for Freddy. Like, he's basically the Crypt Keeper already at that point. Uh, I don't understand why it didn't go a, a million seasons. <laughs> anyway, Rob Heaton, uh, heading here, he's, he's mostly done TV and TV movies since Manhattan, including Knight Rider 2000 from the year 1991, and the the movie Alien Fury Countdown to Invasion from the year 2000. Which has one of the most boring movie posters I've ever seen. (laughs) So, uh, the director here, I think he's been given a fair amount of grief over this film, uh, but some folks loved it. It's kind of interesting to see see how polarized the reaction was. Like, for instance, just looking at some some of the the major like critics and commentators that I tend to look at. I, I don't know what Ebert thought of it, but Leonard Malton loved it. I think he thought it was the best one yet. Meanwhile, huh. uh, Michael Weldon, a uh, psychotronic film uh, chronicler, uh, he's at least back in the day, I don't know if his thoughts changed, but he seemed to think this film was the worst yet. That it was just a <laughs> downward trajectory. So like they couldn't be more opposite in their uh, evaluation of this film. And I went into it expecting a disappointing step down from New Blood because like fresh on the heels of New Blood, New Blood was so good. 
uh, but I was still richly entertained throughout Jason Takes Manhattan. Yeah, it's difficult to say, like, what is the scale or standard you're supposed to use when judging how good a Friday the 13th movie is? Mm-hmm. I mean, none of these movies are what you would think of as, quote, good. I would say maybe the closest to that is, like, the first one, which you could say uh, sort of comes close to working as an actual, like, suspense horror film. But the other ones, they clearly, you know, they're extremely popular. They have some kind of uh, powerful entertainment value. So I would rank it on like, um, just like how pleasurable is the experience of watching it, regardless of what you might mark as the, uh, I don't know, a normal aesthetic criteria by which you would evaluate a, an act of storytelling or filmmaking. Yeah. Uh, it's also interesting when you're dealing with a franchise like this that's that ends up going so long, uh, you know, for, for so long. And also uh, has a lot of uh, ups and downs and changes film to film. Like, yeah. really, off the top of my head, there are very few things I can compare it to. Because, like, do Halloween films really differ all that much? Except for, of course, the, the brilliant Halloween 3, which uh, went off in a different direction. Um, well, I'd say the of, first and the third one are very different than all the others. Yeah, and then there's a lot of lot of sameness. Uh, you know, other franchises, it's about telling a cohesive story, like, say, you know, Harry Potter films, which, you know, all are within the same visual universe for the most part and are, you know, very much eyes set on the finish line. Like, the only thing I can really think of to compare it to would be James Bond films, where, mm-hmm. you know, you're you're changing things up, you're you're moving to, to, to cash in on this trend, trying to go with the times, like, oh, nobody's yeah. going to see bond anymore we better make it weirder um or ooh, let's our send bond him to space got, let's send him to space and then they like, go oh, it's our bond films they got too weird and too funny let's make it depressing again uh, that sort of thing <laughs> that's a very good comparison I, I i don't think i would have thought of that but that that absolutely works jason and james bond like iconic main characters, very lucrative franchises of uh, widely varying uh, aesthetics and qualities from film to film, uh, though it's also very formulaic movies. Like, mm-hmm. you know, all the beats that are going to happen, you know what the stock characters you're going to encounter are. It's just a question of like, what is the, uh, the sort of uh, slight dash of individual flavor introduced within those stock characters each time? Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I think that parallel totally works. And so, who is the Ian Fleming of the the Jason Voorhees universe? Uh, It's Victor Miller, born 1940. Uh, Miller had nothing to do with this film, but he wrote the screenplay for the original Friday the 13th in 1980 and created the character Jason Voorhees, or at least the the sort of proto-Jason Voorhees that would evolve into what we have in this film. I think there are... uh I don't know to what extent they're ongoing, but there have been recent major legal disputes over the the IP of Jason, like who mm. owns the character of Jason. Okay, well, we'll look to the the, the legal literature <laughs> for the uh, for the legal answer on this. But uh, he did write the screenplay for the first film. Well, let, let's go to Jason though, because the, I mean, it's Jason takes Manhattan. He his name is in the title. Um, who plays Jason in this? It's Kane Hodder. Born 1955. Stuntman turned uh, stunt coordinator and actor uh, with stunt and acting credits going back into the 1970s, or at least the, the, like the late 1970s. Uh, survived some severe upper body burns from a fire stunt accident early in his career. Didn't start playing Jason, like we mentioned, until New Blood in 1988, but then subsequently appeared as him in three more Jason movies. Uh, but before New Blood, he had appeared as an actor in such films as House 2, Alligator, in which he played the alligator, uncredited. <laughs> um, he seems to have done some stunt work in The Hills Have Eyes, Part 
Dark 2. And he also, he got to play uh, Leatherface, or got to do Leatherface stunt work for Texas Chainsaw Massacre 3. And he technically, this is kind of a technicality, but he played Freddy Krueger's gloved hand at the end of Jason Goes to Hell. Oh, man, for the person who said part eight was the the one we're talking about today is the worst of the Friday series, they they just had to wait until the next movie because Jason yeah. Goes to Hell <laughs> is part nine of the series. And I think it is essentially unquestionable that that is the worst film in the series. And not only that, one of the worst movies I've ever seen. I remember the trailer for it where it was like, finally, we've had enough of this Jason a bounty team or, you know, I don't know, a SWAT yeah. team is going to oh, take it, him out. Yeah, it does. Have, that movie does have a good bounty hunter in it, but it is long sections of it are just unwatchable. I think I've really only made it through that movie one time. I think I've tried <laughs> to rewatch it from friends and we like stopped. And he doesn't even go to hell, right? That's the thing. that you uh, Arguable oh. at the end of the movie. I think maybe that's the idea of pulling the mask down into the ground. You know, Freddy's hand comes up and pulls mm. the mask down. So it's like he is being pulled down to hell because hell is underground. It's down there. Mm. Okay. Now, uh, Kane Hodder's portrayal of Jason is interesting because he's, I think he is considered by most Friday the 13th fans to be the definitive Jason. Like if there is a canonical Jason actor, it's him. And yet he doesn't show up until the seventh movie in the series. And again, uh, today's movie is the eighth. So this is only the second one he was in. And, uh, and according to a making of documentary, I, I remember watching, he said at some point that they originally weren't even planning on having him return. Cause they didn't know if he had any interest in doing it. He had to actively like, contact the producers and seek out the opportunity to to play the part again oh wow but anyway so you know each actor to play jason brings his own flavor to the role jason never speaks always totally silent so it's all in the body language uh so some play jason especially earlier on in like uh, parts like three and four they play jason as more kind of erratic manic and unpredictable uh and and later jason's i think usually uh, tend to be more subdued in their motions. Kane Hodder's Jason in particular moves in a way that I would characterize as sort of like a depersonalized, like removing a lot of personality on purpose. There is a rote smoothness and efficiency to his movement that makes his Jason feel almost like a robot or like a disembodied physical process. Like to the extent that this later Jason Voorhees is a person, um, Something about the body language makes it feel like, okay, he is not an evil murderer. This is more kind of strictly business, not personal. Uh, you know, he's not the mad slasher. He is a professional executioner doing his job. He's at work. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the body language uh, here is great in, in both of these films, which, again, both of these uh, have Kane as, uh, as Jason. And, uh, yeah, there's so many nice little touches. I like it when Jason is problem-solving. Uh, or and or de determining how to kill somebody. I guess that's one of the main problems he solves. So that's what he's good at. But sometimes he'll do that head uh, turn like a dog thinking about mm -hmm. something, uh, which is quite effective. It gives you a sense of the, uh, the, the, the lethal wheels turning inside the head there. I got to say the masked killer head turning beat that shows up in a lot of movies, but that actually happens in the original Halloween. And I wonder oh, if it okay. all traces back to that. They're all just copying Michael Myers. Like he, uh, PJ soul's boyfriend. Remember he like stabs him against a wall and then he kind of turns his head at him. Hmm. Interesting. Um, so I, but it may be in other movies earlier. I don't know. Okay. 
Well, uh, yeah, I try not to get deeply invested in arguments over which actor is best at any of these various horror franchise roles. But yeah, I think Kane's work is great in this. Uh, he has that that uh, that subdued physicality, like you mentioned. But I also think his basic body shape and height are great for the part. He's 6'4", thickly built. And I, I think we really have to give a lot of credit to the man's skull shape and size as well. <laughs> like there, you see so many shots of the back of uh, Jason's head. And, um, and granted, there's, you know, decay makeup going on there as well because he's fully a revenant at this point. But uh, yeah, Kane, Kane Hoder has that, uh, has that just fabulous skull shape. Like it's undeniable. You can tell it's his skull under there. And when you see pictures of him, uh, out of the makeup, you're still like, that's Jason Voorhees' skull. I can tell. <laughs> I've never had that thought, but okay. I, I see what you're saying. Yeah, it's he in there. He fits the mask well. It should, if, you know, in the future, I hope that, that this skull will be preserved uh, so that we can all continue to, to admire it. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed a hundred thousand miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left, look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic and conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Today I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm J.B. Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig for details. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? 
Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, let's uh, let's get into the rest of the cast here. Um, first of all, we have our final girl. This is Rennie, played by Jansen Daggett, born 1969. And I, look, Rennie's no Tina, so she doesn't have telekinetic and psychic powers, but she does have a kind of a spooky spirit connection with Jason and keeps experiencing terrifying hallucinations. So in a way, you, could see some, you can see some connections between Tina and Rennie here. The actor Daggett was also in Major League, Back to the Miners, uh, the TV movie Project Alf, <laughs> and she appeared on various TV shows, including Home Improvement. Uh, she, so she's no Tina, she's no Lar Park Lincoln, uh, but she's good, and this was her first acting credit anyway, so like, I mean, it's pretty great if you think of it uh, along those lines. Now, I think this movie was trying to recreate some of the di- dynamic of having like an older male human villain like mm. like Terry Kaiser in the previous movie. But in this one, it's the school principal who is just yes. a, a strict mean man. Yes. Uh, Charles McCullough, played by Peter Mark Richman, who really ha- like he just feels in this movie like a, a, a walking, talking uh, CBS movie of the week or something. Um, he's pretty great. Uh, he was born 1927, died in 2021. Um, yeah, definitely plays our, our, our human sub-villain. And, uh, and it's, it's actually kind of nicely put together, his character, because at first he seems like just sort of the, the, you know, the, the stick-in-the-mud authority figure. But then we learn more and more about him, and we're like, okay, yeah, he's, he's, he's even worse. Um, but, uh, uh, the Peter Mark Richman was a veteran actor of TV and screen. Some of his bigger credits included 1966's, uh, Agent for Harm, TV's Dynasty, uh, in the eighties and it, pretty much anything you name from this time period, from the decades in which he was active. Uh, he even pops up on the original Twilight Zone in an episode titled The Fear from 1964. And he was also on Alfred Hitchcock Presents. Hmm. All right, then we have uh, some of the other... Uh, basically, we're into the victims for most of the, the other characters we're going to mention here. We have uh, Sean Robertson. Uh, I guess he's, he's sort of the boyfriend, the good, the good guy. Yeah, he is the final girl's boyfriend. The character who, in part seven, this was the guy who was the, the quote, teenager who was like 35 years old. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I, that's another thing I love about these films, like like old teens. It's yes. maybe not as pronounced as some of the like 1950s movies, which really pushed the the boundaries of what you could buy as a teenager on the screen. But yeah, there are plenty of folks in this movie uh, and and in New Blood where you're like, these are teenagers. These these people were at least in their late 20s, if not their yes. early 30s. These these movies are full of people who are supposed to be 18, but they're actually 32. 
in a weird way that also kind of sanitize the whole process of watching them yes. all killed because it's like these aren't really teenagers these these are grown people not to say that teenagers are not grown you know what i mean though no like, no these, I, I agree these are not it, real it actually, teenagers these are actors yeah i agree it it makes the movies better it makes them easier to enjoy uh it adds to the layer of absurdity but it also uh yeah yeah you don't have to feel as bad so the actor here, Reeves, uh, had a long run on such TV shows as General Hospital, The Young, and The Restless, and Nashville, born in 1966, and I believe still active. Um, we'll get back to more victims here in just a second, but we have a wonderful, crazy deckhand <laughs> and, um, and, and doom speaker in this. Uh, he's credited as deckhand. Oh, okay. He doesn't have a name. No. Unless his name is deckhand. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> but he's credited as deckhand. Uh, so he just keeps showing up. Uh, sometimes at really like annoying places where he's just like, by the way, you're all gonna die. Jason yeah. Voorhees just returned from the grave. And you were, uh, you were filling me in. This is a throwback to another character, right? Right. There's a character in the first couple of movies known. I think his name is crazy Ralph. And all he does is he runs up to people and he goes, you're all doomed. That camp has a death curse. It's camp blood. And then somebody will be like, yeah, Ralph, get out of here. And so, but it happens over and over. Uh, I think he gets killed by Jason in the second movie. Yeah. It's, so this is exactly the same character. He even kind of looks like him. Yeah, it's like there's almost Simpsons parody um, energy to him. In fact, I, f- I feel like there are a number of parallels between, I guess, later parodies on The Simpsons and this movie, including in the um, the Treehouse of Horror episode. Uh, well, it's the, the whole episode where groundskeeper Willie keeps coming to warn people about the evil and then falls over with an axe in his back. That yes. is how this character dies in this film. That's right. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, he's a lot of fun. Played by the uh, the character actor um, uh, Alex Daikun, born nineteen forty six, um, worked uh, quite a bit, uh, and even very recently, such shows as The Chilling Adventures of Sabrina, The X Files. I don't know if you remember this guy from popping up in different roles on The X Files. Oh no, I don't know who he okay. was. Uh, Supernatural, and he was he was in a fun episode of the '90s Outer Limits series that I've seen titled Alien Shop, which kind of a terrible title, but it's a really heavy-handed mortality story in which an alien shopkeeper messes with people's lives through magical item sales, and he's he's the shopkeeper. Um, so a, a lot of Canadian actors, uh, as well as just anybody doing TV during the 90s, showed up on The Outer Limits. Uh, so it's no surprise that this guy did a lot of Canadian TV as well. Uh, not only Outer Limits, but he also popped up on a show called Danger Bay that I remember watching as a kid. And I imagine if there, there are any Canadian listeners out there who are around my age, you no doubt remember Danger Bay as well. I do not know Danger Bay. Well, you, you're not Canadian enough. <laughs> Why would you? All right, so some other victims here. Uh, we have the character Susie, played by Tiffany Paulson. Um, she went on to become a writer, producer, and director, but I think this is one of her, her main film roles. Uh, she's in the boat at the beginning. Not the first, not the second boat, the first boat. All right, then we have Gordon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is a movie of many boats. Uh, there's yeah. Gordon Curry, who plays Miles Wolf. Uh, which character was this? Uh, he's, well, so he's the blonde guy with the mop cut and the surfer okay. vibe. Uh, okay. He appears to be friends with Sean, the boyfriend. Uh, I'm, I'm going to come back to him when we uh, explain some of the characters in a bit. 
Okay, well, he was born in 1965. Other credits include Puppet Master 4 and 5, 1997's Laserhawk. Um, uh, uh, that has Mark Hamill in it. Uh, and uh, also, he was in three Left Behind movies in which he plays this character. What is it? Nikolai Carpathia? Nikolai uh, Carpathia. He plays yeah. the Antichrist in these uh, Christian Apocalypse movies. Nice. Um, on TV, he pops up in such shows as Highlander, The Raven. This was the Highlander, the TV series spinoff. Uh, he's on Forever Night and the 90s Outer, Outer Limits series. So a lot of your, your sort of 90s syndicated cable Canadian filmed TV shows. All right. Then we have uh, Saffron Henderson playing JJ, uh, born 1965. This is our fun rocker character. Rachel always comments that she's really impressed by this girl's hair. Um, but yeah, she's a rocker. She she plays a flying V electric guitar, the hot mm-hmm. pink flying V, and she's just jamming out constantly until uh, Jason whacks her in the head with her own guitar. I love how she goes into like the the uh, the grimy industrial uh, inner workings of the ship to jam out because this is the kind of place that you would jam out in a music video, even though yeah. nobody's filming her. It's a nice touch, <laughs> right? Yeah, the sound in there must be awful. <laughs> but uh henderson's interesting because almost exclusively a voice actor often for the english dubs of different anime titles many of which are, are huge names in anime uh, but she also weirdly enough pops up in the fly 2 this is the sequel to the david cronenberg fly movie she plays veronica quaif the character that was played by gina davis in cronenberg's the fly uh, hmm. Though in this film, it's a very small part because basically, like, they kill her off, but they need her in the series, in, in the movie, just a little bit. And so Henderson steps in to play the part. Huh. I guess she looks a tad bit like Gina Davis. I can see that. Yeah. The Fly 2, um, that's, a, that's a tough one to recommend. There's a lot of monster <laughs> action in it. All right. Martin Cummins plays Wayne. Uh, which one was Wayne? Uh, I think he is the the nerd of the movie. He's the AV club guy. Okay. All right. Yeah, every, you got to have your nerd. In New Blood, it was a a very annoying uh, would-be sci-fi writer. And yes. in this one, it's a, a less annoying would-be videographer. Okay. So uh, this actor, Cummins, born 69, uh, plays the mayor of Riverdale, if that means anything to any of you. Uh, but he did a fair amount of TV over the years, including two episodes of the 90s Outer Limits, neither of which have I seen. And he also pops up on Highlander the series and Danger Bay. So strong Canadian uh, presence here from Cummins. Oh, and then we have, uh, uh, we have uh, an actor by the name of Vincent Craig Dupre, or V.C. Dupre, Dupree, rather. Uh, and he plays the character Julius. Um, so this actor is known for 1992's South Central. He pops up here and there. He did one episode of Freddy's Nightmares, which oh. we just mentioned. So it kind of makes him a, a two-franchise actor here. Yeah, he's the jock character in this movie. And whereas usually I think the jock character is more of a, a human villain or bully, mm-hmm. uh, he's like a more likable jock character. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Oh, and here's here's a you know it's, this is kind of the the Crispin Glover factor where occasionally you'll have an actor show up in one of these films that goes on to do much bigger things because we have Kelly Hu in this who plays uh, Eva Watanabe. Uh, so she was born 1968, American actor of Chinese, English, and Hawaiian ancestry, and uh, yeah, uh, Kelly Hu is is wonderful. This is 
this is uh, her first film role, if, if uh, I remember correctly, following some TV work. But one of her biggest roles, and the one I think of instantly, is her turn as Lady Deathstrike in 2003's X2 X-Men United. She has those long uh, you know, adamantium fingernails, and she has a, uh, an extended fight scene with Wolverine. She's sort of like the the evil counterpart to Wolverine. I think she I'm trying doesn't she only get killed by getting like adamantium like liquid metal injected into her bloodstream or something? I think so. Yeah. Uh it, it, this was always one of my favorite X-Men characters. I remember liking this character a lot when it popped up on the cartoon back in the day. But uh Kelly who also pops up in other films, she plays the sorceress in the 2002 film The Scorpion King. This was the Sword and Sandals, the Mummy spinoff, starring a far less experienced The Rock. I saw that in theaters. That was <laughs> uh, that was ninety minutes. Now here's a fun little factoid: uh, Kelly, who also has voiced the Mortal Kombat character Devora in both. Uh, Mortal Kombat games that have featured that character. This is a, a weird kind of Cronenbergy insect woman character, so she gets to do a cool female monster voice, uh, which you know there's a fine art too, and she does a great job. But the the crazy thing is that uh, in 2015's Mortal Kombat X, Jason Voorhees was a downloadable character, so you could actually have Devora fight Jason in that video game. Oh, so it's it would, would this, I guess, be a, a sort of digital reunion of Kelly Who and Kane Hodder? Yeah, yeah. All right, and finally, a note on the music. Fred Mullen did the music. Uh, Mullen's work is fine here, but obviously he's no Harry uh, Medfredini, who composed the original Friday the 13th score, as well as the just absolutely excellent Friday the 13th Part 3 theme song, which became a legitimate disco hit in 1982. If you have not heard it, go listen to it. It's a great track. I'll throw it on the blog post for this episode at smoodamusic.com. Do you remember this track, Joe? Uh, I feel like you've sent it, the part three song. You've sent it to yeah. me before, but I don't remember. Oh, it's just, it's, it's got a little funkiness to it, a little synthiness to it. It's, it's great. You can, you can definitely imagine uh, guys dancing to it uh, at the disco in 82. Okay. Uh, but anyway, Fred Mullen, uh, he worked throughout the 80s and 90s, especially composing scores for New Blood, uh, though I understand New Blood also reused music from previous Friday films. Uh, but he also worked on Friday the 13th, the series, two episodes of the 1990s Outer Limits series, and something like 18 episodes of Tech War. Oh, the uh, the Shatner-authored uh, series. Yes, quote-unquote authored. Yeah, uh, the children will have to learn about Tech War one day. Yes. <laughs> All right, let's get into the plot of Jason Takes Manhattan. As it is, I mean, these movies tend to be very light on plot, so we're, we're not going to try to do a scene-by-scene -scene recap. I think this is one of the ones where uh, we might zoom in on some particular parts, and, and mm -hmm. we must zoom in almost to the molecular level on the very opening <laughs> of this movie, which is genuinely hilarious. Uh, I think especially if you've seen the other movies, because the opening of this one is so unlike the opening of any other Jason movie – it starts with you just fade in on footage of the New York City skyline after dusk. So you're mm -hmm. over uh, the Brooklyn Bridge or one of the bridges into Manhattan. I don't know which one. You got car headlights creeping uh, creeping along. And there's this 80s perm rock just chugging in the background. Like 
Uh, you know, that sound where there is way too much chorus and reverb on everything, including the drums. Mm-hmm. And then you get a random voice coming on to narrate. I think we find out that this is the voice of a radio DJ, but it's just speaking over the song with no explanation at the beginning. And I had to make a transcript of exactly what it says, because this is just uh, too good. He says exactly, it's like this. We live in claustrophobia, a land of steel and concrete, trapped by dark waters. There's no escape, nor do we want it. We've come to thrive on it and each other. You can't get the adrenaline pumping without the terror, good people. <laughs> I love this town. The the number of like just like the feeling of non sequitur, the uh the pronoun antecedent confusion, there's no escape, nor do we want it. We've come to thrive on it. Escape? I I don't even know. Uh, I love too how this is like the voice of the dark bard of New York City. Yes, uh, the guy who who is totally fine living in the city as depicted in this movie and you know sort of adjacent Hell City, uh, New York City films, and yet it's totally redundant because this is not a film that is at all concerned or interested in what it's like to live in New York City. No, <laughs> or not who really. These people are they don't factor into the plot really at all. Well, I would say that the movie follows the ethos that was very common at the time. In fact, I would say this is almost ubiquitous of films of the late 1980s that would depict New York City as an almost fantasy level hellish environment. Um, They're like uh, in this movie, as soon as the characters arrive in New York City, they are immediately attacked by a heavy metal band. <laughs> and then uh, and then there's a part where they like flee. Jason is chasing them around and they like flee into a diner and they're like, a maniac is trying to kill us. And the waitress just goes, welcome to New York. Yeah. 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 There's this feeling that any people who actually live here are just lost, unknowable souls who are just so desensitized to violence, just so dead to emotion that that at most they're going to say something rude to you and they, they might help you if it's their job. Right. And so uh, in the furtherance of this, the credit sequence here goes on to introduce you to the concept of New York. So after the monologue finishes, you get uh, the, the song keeps like the, the, they turn up the volume on that song that's been chugging the perm rock. And it opens with the most 1980s perm rock lyric ever. Uh, the line is fallen angel into the street. The song <laughs> is called uh, the darkest side of night. Oh my. But so the, the yeah, the, after this, the, the opening credit is a montage that is supposed to introduce you to the concept of New York, a mystical land somewhere east of Ashai, characterized almost entirely by crime, car headlights, and uh, poisonous chemicals. Yes. And so I want to catalog in detail everything we see in these opening credits. So the first thing is we see Times Square with the light-up billboards bearing the Batman logo. I think this would have been for the first Tim Burton movie. Uh, We get Coca-Cola, Sony, uh, Camel cigarettes, all kinds of stuff like that. And then we see punks loitering in Times Square, Mm -hmm. one of which has a mohawk, and they're smoking cigarettes ominously. Yeah, you got to have a mohawk. And, you know, I, I also love these shots of Times Square because if you've been to Times Square uh, over the last, you know, 10 years at least, you know that it is it is hell on earth. It is like a neon uh, like garbage zone, <laughs> you know, with it's just so overwhelming. Uh, you wonder why you have come here. Um, 
It's just a lot. And so these shots you see of Times Square in this film, they're not quite, like, I guess we're at this period in time where it's not quite the old days of Times Square. Uh, but it's a very subdued Times Square. Yeah, like, I found myself thinking, I would go to this Times Square. It yeah. looks like it would not just completely destroy me uh, on, a, on a sensory crowd level. No, no, it's almost deserted, in fact. There are very yeah. few people there except for a few punks. Yeah. <laughs> There are no Ilmos or anything. <laughs> There's no, yeah. <laughs> Though, oh my God, imagine if, if Ilmos had been there and we could have had that showdown, like a, at least a stare down between generic Elmo costume dude. They, uh, yeah, there should be a movie Jason. where Jason goes to Times Square now. Yeah. And so he like, there's like a guy in a Superman suit there and they square off. And <laughs> yeah, maybe he clobbers that naked cowboy guy. Uh, Jason runs into some minions. <laughs> oh man, chases somebody through the M&M store. Yeah, it would be great. It would be great. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed a hundred thousand miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left, look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic and conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Today I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm J.B. Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit att.com slash hypergig for details. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. 
Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, but anyway, after this, so many more sites to show us. So uh, they show us a bunch of garbage-filled alleyways emitting just clouds of steam with a wall that has been spray-painted with the word gang. I think the full <laughs> phrase is – I don't remember the name of the gang, but it's like X-Gang Rules. Very plausible <laughs> graffiti. Uh, then we see a filthy manhole with its cover popped open, also just billowing steam. Uh, it makes me think about that chapter in Moby Dick that's just all about chowder. <laughs> yeah, the the New York City underground is absolutely key to this sort of uh, mythology of the city. Because for starters, the real-life New York City underground is beyond fascinating. And I love reading about it. I love traveling through it. Uh, but... The New York City underground of Pulp Fiction and horror cinema is a place where you encounter chuds and ancient yep. Chinese demons, toxic waste, Vietnam vet cannibals, and just so much more. Rivers of slime. Uh, toxic waste is quite central to this movie's vision of New York. It, mm -hmm. The lifeblood of the city is toxic waste, and its veins frequently just flood with toxic waste. Yeah, we've later learned there's like a tide of toxic waste. Like there's an yeah. ecosystem of toxic waste underneath this toxic city. Uh, let's see. Uh, we see in the opening credits a man in a business suit walking down like a mile-long, dark, steamy alleyway. And he's just suddenly like uh, beaten and robbed by more uh, heavy metal criminals. Uh, and They're mm -hmm. wearing like jean jackets. They got long hair instead of mohawks. And so the guys from, from Metallica, like, remove the money from the guy's wallet, and they throw the wallet into what appears to be an open barrel of toxic waste with a wet rat crawling around on top. Oh, man, I love this whole thing. Because first of all, man taking a shortcut that no rational man of his station would take, instantly set upon by youths. And then, yeah, this, this barrel with the rat. I love yeah. that the, the, the wallet goes into the barrel, the rat comes up, and then we just linger on this rat for what seems like forever. <laughs> and it's this barrel a long, will become a long time, yeah. Long and the barrel rat will, shot. The, where, the barrel here will become very important later on. Yes. Uh, and then suddenly we're inside. We see a diner with a jukebox, a signed advertising chocolate milk for 30 cents. And uh, <laughs> a lady at the counter gets a coffee refill, but she seems dissatisfied. Like she keeps pointing at her cup as if to indicate no more. Fill it till it overflows. <laughs> but the, the server just walks away. And I think this is the same server who will later say welcome to New York about the, the murderer. Mm. Uh, we see subway stations with escalators covered in graffiti that looks like it was all applied on the same day. Yeah. Uh, people sitting on a subway car, but they are being filmed from the floor looking up. Uh, interesting yeah. uh, cinematography choice. Yeah, just more lost souls. 
uh, more like uh, punks and heavy metal rockers doing uh, doing drugs in the alleyways. They're like holding needles up to the light so that they <laughs> form a syringe silhouette and then just like squirting some jet of yellow green liquid into the air that sparkles in a lamp beam. It's possible this is Mountain Dew. Yeah, or or it's the ooze from the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. <laughs> oh, the ooze, yeah. 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 Oh, and then finally, the Statue of Liberty, baby. Show us the statue. <laughs> uh, the promise, the promise of New York City. You know, we haven't gotten there yet, but there's a hilarious moment early in this film where Sean, the boyfriend, gives Rennie, the final girl, a gift. And they're on the boat. They haven't gotten to New York. They just got on the boat. She opens the the gift up, and it's like a jewelry case. And inside is a necklace with the Statue of Liberty on it, but they haven't yeah. gotten to New York yet. It's like a <laughs> it's like a trinket you would buy on the street in New York, but they're on the way. Yeah. <laughs> so New York has been established uh, heavily, it, and in fact, this whole sequence kind of reeks of producers or somebody saying, "Hey, we we're putting Manhattan in the title. Is there any way you could put some Manhattan at the top of the picture?" So the yeah. people, because people aren't going to see it again for over an hour. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And in fact, I think probably the only thing in that opening sequence that is actually Manhattan is the shot of Times Square and the shot of the Statue of Liberty. I think the rest mm-hmm. is probably uh, Vancouver once again. Yeah. Uh, oh, but then, so anyway, we get a nice uh, non-diegetic to diegetic music transition where that song, The Darkest Side of Night, is suddenly playing on uh, in a totally different place. So like you're in New York and the camera dips under the water and then it reemerges from the water and you're at Camp Crystal Lake. Uh, and the music transitions to music coming out of a radio on a boat. It's like a cabin cruiser that's floating in Crystal Lake. Did you notice what the radio DJ was saying when it did that transition? Uh, the only thing I remember is that it, like this one goes out to something to do with Crystal Lake. Like he references Crystal yeah. Lake in it, which I mean immediately made me wonder, well, where is Crystal Lake? I've never I never it's kinda like Springfield in the Simpsons. Right. Like does it is it anywhere or is it just generically somewhere in the US? This is so weird. I made a transcript of it too. So the DJ says, you've been listening to WGAZ, the electricity of Manhattan. This request is going out all the way to Crystal Lake, the (laughs) senior class of Lakeview High. They'll be graduating on the 13th of this month, and we wish them the best of luck and success when they come to visit our seductive city. Our lure is a great one, dear friends, but beware, the City of Lights casts many shadows indeed. (laughs) So, this is a New York-based radio DJ interrupting the darkest side of night to give an on-air shout-out to a random class of a graduating high school, graduating high school seniors from somewhere else who are going to be visiting New York in a few days. Okay. Perfectly sensible. (laughs) Yeah. But as to the location of Crystal Lake, yeah, this is something that I think is not consistent throughout the films. In this movie, again, it's obvious they're like when they're in the port leaving in a bit, they're in the Pacific Northwest. It's obviously the Northwest. But other movies that have established the location of Crystal Lake, I think it's supposed to be somewhere in New Jersey. Okay. That would make sense. Wherever they're leaving from, whether it's Vancouver or New Jersey, in either case, does it make sense that they would take a boat to New York, a voyage by sea for a class trip to New York? I guess it's the only way to get him there. Like, you can't have a bus trip. How's Jason going to yeah. get it, stow away on the bus? 
It's like, oh, well, the bathroom has been out of order for the entire drive. Sorry, guys. And it turns out it's got Jason Voorhees in it, or Jason's clinging to the top of the the, the van. Like, this is just ultimately yeah. the way that he would travel, I guess. Uh, but so in these uh, movies where Jason has become undead, you got to have like a sort of waken him up scene. You got to mm-hmm. defrost him somehow. So in this movie, the way it happens is this yacht on the lake is occupied by a couple from that graduating class. Like the, they respond to the radio DJ. They're like, hey, that's us. And uh, so it's a boy and a girl who are generally up to no good. And the guy pretty early on dives into a big lore dump. He's like, gee, it's kind of spooky that we are floating right next to that camp where all those people were murdered. Uh, <laughs> and he, he just explains all the lore. He's like, Jason was a boy. You know, he does the stuff we talked mm-hmm. about at the beginning of this episode. And then uh, he, he ends up by saying that guy is dead now somewhere at the bottom of this lake. And meanwhile, their boat anchor, we're seeing it just, it's dragging across a power cable and bringing it Mm -hmm. into contact with Jason's chain bound body. And then it starts rubbing against a rock, sparks fly and whoops, electricity brings Jason back to life. Just like a Frankenstein. I love it. They also happen to have a hockey mask on board the boat. Mm -hmm. So he got demasked at the end of the previous movie, but he gets a new mask just because they have one. It's, It's very lucky. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess this is up north. They're going to they're gonna have more hockey around in general. So maybe it's a little easier to come by. So yeah, he gets uh, uh, electrified into life. He comes up on the boat. Of course, he, he, he kills the two people on the boat with like a harpoon gun. I don't know why mm-hmm. they even have that. <clears throat> but it's there and he does it. And when we first see Jason in this movie... I got to say this of the entire series, I think has got to be by far the wettest Jason. This is a generally slimy, almost mucus drenched to Jason. Oh, yeah. Like he's just dripping in necro slime. And if if he's been somewhere, sometimes their characters like are like, why is there a hole punched in this door? And the hole is dripping this slime. Yeah. Um, it's, a, it's a wonderful touch. And, you know, it, 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 it matches up with the way his skin looks, which it looks like that, you know, his hand could just de-glove at any moment. Yeah. But okay, so Jason's woken back up. He he's he's killed people on a boat. He's just on this boat. How's he going to get to Manhattan? Well, here's where the premise comes in. And this is the premise. We follow the aforementioned graduating class of high school seniors as they go on their graduation trip, which is apparently getting on what looks like I, I'm no expert in ships, but this does not look to me like a cruise ship. This looks like a cargo ship of some kind mm-hmm. getting on like a dirty cargo ship departing from somewhere that looks like the Pacific Northwest and traveling by boat to New York. It reminds me of the boat in shockwaves a bit uh, in that it does not look attractive to venture upon. It does not look like a boat anyone would want to travel on recreationally. Uh, yeah. But then also, yeah, we have all these shots of the interior of the ship where it's like the Titanic in there. Yeah. Like the the bowels of the Titanic. Yeah. Uh, it's called the Lazarus. <laughs> yeah, nice. Uh, so here, I guess we meet a couple of the main characters. So we meet Rennie, the final girl of the movie. She's played mm-hmm. very just straight down the middle. She is, she is a nice person. She is smart. She has a cute dog and don't worry. The dog is not harmed in this film. The dog just disappears for most of the movie. And then at the end, after Jason is <laughs> defeated, the dog comes running up to them and they're just yep. like, Oh, Hey buddy. <laughs> the, the ending I absolutely love because yeah, at that point, I mean, there are no real spoilers here, but Jason has killed everybody, but these two kids. Yeah. Um, it's been a, just a traumatic night of just murder and death and doom and running for your life. But then they encounter the dog and they're like, oh, it's great. And then they, 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 they just go off. 
uh, into the city like they're they're just on vacation and like everyone or most of the people they knew did not just all die violently. Yeah, I think do they go get a hot dog or something? Yeah, they go get a hot dog. They walk through the park, <laughs> that sort of thing. Um, well, we're finally in New York. Um, and uh, but so it's Rennie in the car along with a, another character named Mrs. Van Dusen, who is a, a kind and nurturing teacher who just repeatedly tells Rennie that she is so smart and so special. Uh, she explodes later in the movie. <laughs> yeah. Played by uh, Barbara Bingham, by the way. Yeah, so the, they they introduce them in this car, the scene where they're like sitting in a car, and it's so like the, the the first like seventeen minutes of this movie where there's like all these exposition lines, it's like almost every single line like clangs in some weird way that feels wrong, and you're like, huh? But <laughs> uh, so they they introduce these two characters, and the first thing miss van dusen does is she like gives rennie a gift she opens up a box and inside it's like a fountain pen and the teacher says stephen king supposedly used it in high school (laughs) (laughs) i love it stephen king's holy pen a holy relic supposedly used it like (laughs) how did she acquire it i don't know why is she giving it to rennie i don't know is rennie a writer if so that is not not ever divulged yeah yeah i but i I love that this holy artifact is um is implanted into the picture i mean it's it's interesting too because new blood uh the previous picture you know is often summarized as being uh carrie versus jason Mm, Um, yeah which i mean loosely so uh but uh anyway yeah here it is stephen king's pen and it will come up again and then immediately Miss Van Dusen is like, you're the best student I've ever had. Uh, you're so brave and strong. You are going to survive this film. <laughs> Vote of confidence. Uh, but meanwhile, you remember that boat Jason boarded in the previous mm-hmm. scene? Uh, here it is. Suddenly it appears to be floating in the harbor next to the big passenger ship, the Lazarus. And we see Jason like pop up out of the water and begin to climb onto the second boat, the boat bound for New York. And here we come to... Uh, a long-running argument between my Friday the 13th enjoying friends and I, and the question is this. Does Jason drive the boat? Does he drive the first boat to the other boat? Or does he merely remain on the boat while it, I guess, drifts downstream to the harbor? If the latter, does he stand the whole time, or does he sit while the boat is drifting? <laughs> I, I have long been of the opinion that, yeah, Jason drives that boat. He's, like, working the throttle. He's steering. He's driving. We never see <laughs> either way, so it's it's up to interpretation. But uh, a good friend of mine always insists Jason does not drive the boat. He just thinks it doesn't work. It's, it reminds me of the whole, does Indiana Jones climb into the U-boat, uh, or does he cling to the U-boat for the entire journey? <laughs> yeah, we'll uh, never find out. In the later part of uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Uh, on this one, I'm glad you brought it, I brought it up because uh, I got to think about it whilst watching the, the picture. I think on one hand, this is essentially a Dracula-Demeter situation. You know, Dracula kills everyone aboard the Demeter, and it continues to deliver him to his destination. Uh, and, of course, the ship, you know, rolls up. Everyone's dead on board. Uh, but... Dracula does not pilot that vessel. Um, you know, it's just kind of like it delivers him there, you know, through dark magic and destiny and so forth. Um, so on one hand, I feel like that's got to be what's going on here. But on the other hand, Jason can use tools and machines. He does so sometimes to kill people. And while water is part of his prison, he can also clearly get around on water and he's not handicapped by it in like a vampire sense. Mm-hmm. 
So I guess he could drive it, but then also this comes back to why does Jason want or need to travel anywhere? He's been very local up till now, and suddenly he's going to go to New York or he's going to check out this boat. Uh, I, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, so far Jason has been almost like a like a uh, like a sentry robot that protects a particular location. Mm-hmm. So it's like you come into his territory and then he will do violence against you. He's he's not like going out elsewhere until this movie. I guess it's supposed to be like a situation of he's an accidental stowaway or he's he's drawn in by the fact that Rennie has this weird connection with him like with at least with some aspects of him it it gets kind of weird with the various hallucinations she has of young zombie mutant jason um some very nice hallucination sequences by the way uh there are some very artistic sequences in this film dealing with her flashbacks and visions and hallucinations that uh i I don't think get enough credit okay so we're not going to explain the whole plot but we should at least mention who some of the main characters are so you got rennie and you got miss van dusen and they're getting on the boat uh, then I would say you've got Sean. Sean is the pretty boy. Again, he mm-hmm. fills the role of the final girl's love interest. He is handsome, heroic, and otherwise devoid of personality traits. Yeah. Uh, they, they tried to fill in some character shading on this one with one of the most ludicrous connections they could have come up with. Sean's father happens to be the captain of the ship that they are all riding to New York. Mm-hmm. And Sean is a great disappointment to his father, who, by the way, kind of looks like L. Ron Hubbard in his sea captain <laughs> outfit, because Sean, uh, Sean is a disappointment because he is a failure at being a boat captain. Uh, he's, I guess his dad wants him to be a boat captain as well, and Sean like forgets to do the international maritime signal when they're going underway and stuff. All right, so that's Sean, and Sean will redeem himself later on, in my eyes anyway. Oh, okay. I I, I can't wait to hear it. Okay, so uh, we, we also got uh, like the principal guy, Mr. McCulloch, who mm-hmm. is a, a strict and overbearing either teacher or principal. He, he happens to be chaperoning this uh, senior trip. His interests include scolding, shouting, finger-wagging, uh, warning, hectoring, excoriating, and naysaying. He's like a combination of Principal Skinner and Robert Stack from Unsolved Mysteries. Yeah, and, and like I said, this is a character that initially seems unlikable and is just a stick in the mud and is the authority figure to the teens. But also we get additional wrinkles later on where we learn that he is maybe a little slow to say, hey, teenage student, put your clothing back on. And also he is the type of uncle who will just push you into the lake to help you learn how to swim, even though there there may be like undead monster children down there somewhere. Yeah, so, so Rennie's well, like, character flaw is that she's afraid of the water. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Uh, yeah. And, and we learn in a flashback later on, I think when Rennie is staring at a puddle in the street, or maybe it's a puddle of gasoline after a car explodes. Oh God. Yes. It's after the the car explodes. This is one of the many wonderfully shot, like this is like a beautiful moment in this film, (laughs) um, that I was captivated by. Hmm. Okay. Uh, well she does look into a puddle and she has a memory of when, uh, this guy, oh, who we also find out is her uncle and guardian. Oh Yeah, she's looking into the flaming puddle, and then we see something's moving across the puddle. What is it? Is it a tiny boat? And it is like the, yeah, the, the, the memory, the, 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 the wide shot of the boat on the lake, on Crystal Lake. 
but like superimposed or whatever within yeah. the flaming puddle. Uh, and everything's uh, very soft focus because it's yeah. a flashback. And it's like mm-hmm. her as a kid and her her mean uh, vice principal uncle is like, you're going to learn to swim. And the way that will happen is I will shove you into the water and command you to swim. And she's like, no, I can't swim. And he's like, swim, swim, you can do it. <laughs> yeah. Oh, but uh, the, the principal here, he also uh, – he's the guy who, once people start concluding that the murders are being committed by Jason Voorhees, just like the in the old stories, this guy is the doubter who must be punished for his skepticism. <laughs> uh, most of the Jason movies have some form of this. Somebody's like, Jason Voorhees is dead. You know, you're being ridiculous. He can't be behind this. And then a couple of scenes later, Jason mm-hmm. cuts them in half with a saw or something. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road, the steeper the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones so we'll never lose touch with civilization and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic and conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Today I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm J.B. Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit att.com slash hypergig for details. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. 
Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, so let's see who are the other uh, major characters among the the many victims. There's uh, there's Julius, as we said, he's kind of the jock character, but he's not the standard jock bully. He's more of a a sort of likable brash hero. He's a boxer in training. We see him doing a boxing scene. There's like a boxing ring on mm-hmm. this boat, uh, and there's a scene where uh, once they figure out Jason's murdering everybody. Um, Mr. McCulloch is like, everyone do what I say. And Julius uh, says, no, school's out. (laughs) And he has a stupendous boxing match with Jason on the roof of a nondescript building. I think in an earlier draft of the script, this was going to take place at Madison Square Garden. Oh, it is a wonderful fight sequence because, yeah, he stands up to Jason. He starts throwing punches. He's connecting with these punches. Jason's staggering a bit. He's working Jason towards the edge of the roof. And you you know what's going to happen. You know he's not going to get a knockout on Jason. Or if he does, Jason's going to get up and stab him or something. So you know this isn't going to work. But for a minute, there's hope. Uh, but then yeah. he's, he wears himself out, just wears himself out, punching on Jason. And then out of breath, he, like, he's, he dares Jason to give him a shot. He's like, give me your best shot. Jason rears back, punches his head completely off, which yes. goes flying off the roof of the building into a dumpster. And then we get rolling head cam. Did you yes. notice that? They, oh, yeah, like, yeah. they have like a tumbling camera shot. It's oh, from the okay. point of view of the rolling head. Yeah, I think they, they, they took that from... Um, Polanski's Macbeth. Oh, I think we had a rolling headshot. There is a there is there is a decapitated head POV in that movie. Uh, mm. so maybe there's some connection. Uh, let's see. There's some other characters. There's uh, there's the mean girl in a movie like this. You got to have the mean girl. I think the character's name is Tamara. Uh, so a lot of these movies have a character. It, like in part seven, I think the one uh, she's named Melissa. This is basically a blonde girl who is implied to be from a rich family who's at the top of the social pyramid, who bullies everyone of a, of a lesser station in that social pyramid, uh, usually including doing some kind of mean prank or diss on the final girl. Tamara also does the drugs, though. And she, she shoves Rennie off the side of the boat <laughs> for no reason, like, really. Just like, oops, whoops, shoves her into the water. Mm, though she was on the drugs at the time. Yes. Uh, Speaking of the drugs, you also have Tamara's friend, Eva. This is the one played by Kelly Hu, who is like the the nicer cool girl. She's best friends with the evil rich girl. Mm -hmm. There's one part where uh, the the mean girl is like, um, hey, let's do illegal drugs. And Eva is like, I don't know. What if I lose my science scholarship? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. She seems like a, a good character, but she is she is doomed by association. 
Uh, you got Wayne. This is the geek of the movie. This is the AV Club guy. He's running around with a video camera, uh, actually predating the uh, the creation of the found footage movie. This is a movie where a character in a life or death scenario is still filming everything. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I thought about that a little bit. Yeah, it's like, oh, this is this is kind of like this would be the whole movie later on. Annoyingly. Uh, so maybe that was one of the reasons that I was increasingly in favor of this character's death. Uh, we already mentioned Miles because this is the guy played by Gordon Curry, who's in the Left Behind movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, but also, I wanted to mention a few things about him, even though he is not a very notable character. In fact, I don't know if he has any lines that remain in the final cut. He's just standing around. Maybe he, he has a couple. Yeah, he is so unnotable that I had him. I had his his character uh, misattributed in the, the the notes here. I was thinking <laughs> this actor must be the guy who plays the video game. I don't know. I had it backwards. Yeah. Easy to blend these characters together. Well, I wanted to mention a couple of things about him. One is that when we first see him, he's in like the pilot's, I don't know what you call it, the pilot's room, the place where you pilot the ship. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's standing there with Sean and Sean's dad dressed up in the captain's uniform. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, he appear, And in this scene, he appears to be wearing a sweatshirt with a picture of the Titanic on it. <laughs> and also, there's a deleted scene that you can watch if you've got the, the Blu-ray of this. Uh, this is when we very first meet this character. Uh, Captain Daddy here says some hilarious line to him. It's hard to capture the exact awkwardness of it, but it is something like, Hello, Miles. Congratulations on winning second place on that intramural diving competition. What do you say once we're out on the ocean, I cut the engines, throw anchor, and let you take a few dives off the back? <laughs> yeah, that's that's something you do. Yeah. 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 And uh, I I can't imagine why they cut that moment out. But yeah, and then uh, I think a uh, blonde guy is just like, whoa, bodacious. Yeah. <laughs> Cap, the actor playing Captain Daddy in this uh, is he has some some other line. There's one where he's talking to I don't know his like first mate or something, asking him about his kid and how old his kid is, and he's like yeah. 18 months. And then with like just such earnest, uh, this earnest delivery, Captain Daddy says, "Hell of an age" or something like that. <laughs> uh, and it was, but it was like so earnestly delivered. And I was thinking to myself, is it was was 18 months really a hell of an age? I don't know. I don't know if it really was. Not sure I would have be, been been. I mean, this is all relative, but but I was I was quizzing uh, I was uh, quizzing myself over that uh, proclamation. Okay, so you got all the people on the boat. Jason gets on the boat. The boat departs. After that, there is not a whole lot of plot. Rather, there are just the standard mechanics of a mm-hmm. Friday the Thirteenth movie with some location twists. So. Jason murders basically everybody on the boat one by one. This is the majority of the movie. Then the boat starts exploding. Then the remaining survivors at the time, which is Rennie, Sean, uh, Mr. McCulloch, Miss Van Dusen, and Julius, and the dog. The dog's okay. They they take a rowboat the rest of the way to Vancouver, or uh, I mean New York. They see the Statue of Liberty and they cheer. Then they like go up to a dock and the moment they arrive in New York, like literally as they're leaving the dock, they are attacked by a heavy metal band. Uh, and then Jason chases them around New York for like 15 minutes and kills everybody except Rennie and Sean. And then in a final twist, Jason is defeated when he follows them into the sewer. The sewer, we're told by a sewer worker, floods every night at midnight with toxic waste. Uh, The clock strokes midnight. Jason is hit by toxic waste. Rennie and Sean avoid it by climbing up a ladder. And then the toxic waste turns Jason back into a child version of himself. Well, 
Um, I, I have some thoughts on this. Uh, we were talking about a little bit about this uh, off mic because, yes, the, the, the flood of toxic waste moves in, destroys Jason, and then when she looks down, uh, she sees him as a child again. Now, mm-hmm. my interpretation of this is that Jason is actually just um, sludge at this point. He's toxic sludge, like floating in the shape of a Jason in the water, but via her weird hallucinogenic connection with Ghost Kid Jason, which is established several times in the movie with some really, at times I think very creative uh, hallucination sequences, um, she sees the child. Uh, that's what she sees there instead of, of the sludge. It's like she sees Jason the child finally at peace, finally, uh, you know, actually. And it's like he's sleeping, but he's sleeping the eternal sleep of, 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 of true death. But, I mean, this is a movie with magic in it, so <laughs> it could be he was turned into a straight-up child, uh, and the child is floating now in the sewers of New York. It invites interpretation. Like, this film is like Taxi Driver. Um, <laughs> okay. Uh, let's see. Uh, let's see. I, let's see. What else did I, I want to... So, um, I love that the new... even You spend so much time on the boat, it feels like you're always going to be on the boat. And then when yeah. you do finally get to New York, despite the fact that this was the selling point of the movie, it, we- it weirdly feels like bonus movie. Uh, yeah. It's like... Uh, it was an interesting feeling. Even though, again, this was what we were sold in the teaser trailers, that it was going to be Jason in New York. Right before you logged on here, Rob, Seth, and I were talking about it, and Seth suggested that the movie could be called Jason Still Cruisin'. <laughs> that would be good because it is mostly boat yeah it is it's kind of like i mentioned dracula and, and the, the demeter earlier uh, again the section where dracula is on the boat is just a small portion of the novel a great portion that is you know given adequate amount of time and space in the novel um but then again the novel is not titled dracula goes to england so, or Dracula takes England or whatever. So it's, it's, it's different in that regard as well. But there's at least, I think there's a movie project in the works called like The Last Voyage of the Demeter that is going to be like, okay, that one section of the novel as a full-blown uh, motion picture. What happened on the boat that, uh, that, that transported Dracula to England? Uh, how did all those people die? What all sorts of horrible things occurred? And to a certain extent, you could almost look, like, look at this movie like that. Like, this movie is trying to fill in a gap that nobody wanted filled in just yet. This is interesting, comparing uh, Jason Takes Manhattan to Dracula. There are a lot of parallels. I mean, they're both a movie about a sort of monster that is the that is the master of its own rural domain. It is mm-hmm. out somewhere far from the city. And, and it's even then, tied to the soil of that location. Yes, yeah, it's tied to the soil. And then makes a journey by sea to the Metropolitan Center and, uh, and arrives where there is you know, great population density and modernity <laughs> and technology and comes in collision with all these things. Yeah. Uh, okay, yeah, Dra- this is a good – Dracula is Jason Takes Manhattan. I like it. Um, now, you mentioned major center of population. That's one of the reasons I love when they initially show up in New York, because it seems almost completely depopulated at first. This is the largest city in the U.S., and Manhattan Island is a major center of population, and yet there's virtually nobody there. It's, there's nobody, yeah. It's, it's only it's, violent criminals. Yeah, you expect to see Snake Plissken wandering around back there or something. Yeah. I, I found it interesting that McCulloch dies in that what I think is the same barrel of sludge that had the rat in it from earlier. 
uh, Jason uh, just dumps him over and drowns yes. him, pushes his feet down into it. He kills him with the dip from Roger Rabbit. <laughs> he's right. like, you know, he's the judge. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And meanwhile, he's down there going, it can't be Jason Voorhees. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> we we get subway tunnel action, which instantly, I mean, you put a monster in a subway and, and I'm there. I'm committed to the picture. And this is the, the action sequence, too, where Sean totally redeems himself jumps at at uh, like leaps at Jason and administers a flying bulldog like a flying headlock uh head driver like he's a Steiner brother coming off the top rope and drives Jason head first into the third rail <laughs> electrocuting him I want to hear the math promo for that. <laughs> it was fabulous. I loved it. I had to watch it twice. Um, so, the, yeah, they battle down there. They come out into Times Square. And, oh, there's this glorious moment where we, we had established punks in Times Square earlier. Mm-hmm. Same punks are there again, uh, listening to rap music. They have rap music playing on their, um, mm-hmm. their boom box. And Jason comes by. He's after our main characters. But he has time to, to violently kick over their boom box. They do not react well to this, and they like they're like, "Hey, man!" They're like, you know, stepping to Jason. Jason just turns around. He doesn't have time to kill them all. He's suddenly in an area where they're just. This is a new situation for Jason, right? Yeah. There are too many people to kill all of them. He has to leave some behind. But to to get rid of the punks, he just turns around, casually lifts up his mask. We don't see anything. Uh, he's facing away from the camera, but they all just run away in fear. Uh, wonderful moment. Loved this yeah. moment. But we don't, yeah. So it's it's great because in this movie we haven't seen what his face design is going to look like yet. So we're we're enticed. We're like, how scary is it going to be? And oh boy, the reveal is so underwhelming. Yeah, especially coming off of New Blood because in New Blood the reveal is horrifying. They yeah. do a great job of like, oh, you've ripped off his mask, and it's not. Uh, you know, it's it's the thing is, I guess sometimes in these films, it's like Jason is supposed to be kind of awkward and disfigured underneath. Like it comes back to the basic horror trope. What does removing the mask do? Mm-hmm. Are you like are you revealing like the shame or the weakness of the individual or are you unleashing the monster even more? And in New Blood it was definitely a release of the monster because this 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 grizzled and disfigured and rotting face of a revenant is just just terrifying to to behold in this movie i feel like we take a a, a step backwards and we get more into the uh, let's reveal the like the awkward derpiness of the of the revenant let's take away some of his strength by unmasking him yeah his face in this movie is kind of cute he's almost like uh, a slimy gray muppet yeah, he has kind of a Muppet quality. He's kind of like, murr, murr, kind of a, <laughs> a sensibility. Uh, and the face is revealed after, um, I believe, she picks up a bucket that's labeled toxic waste, Yeah, right? Yeah, and throws it in his in face. The, down in the sewers, because they end up going into the sewers, down in the chud, chud territory. Yeah, throws it in his face, and it starts steaming, and the mask comes off, and there's his, there's there's the, the face of Jason, and Jason takes Manhattan, it looks it, and while it looks a little derpy at first, I will say that as we proceed and we see him like shambling down the tunnel after them, um, I it didn't look as bad to me. So yeah, in this tunnel, they're they're trying to escape Jason. They've come up out of the subway. He chases them. They're in Times Square. This is the actually shot in Times Square. I think there's like one or two scenes actually shot in New York. This mm-hmm. was really Times Square. I guess they had to get the crowds to the side, like behind the barricades to clear it out for Jason. And and there are great stories of when they were filming this. Like it did draw crowds. People were really <laughs> excited to see Jason. 
uh, shooting in Times Square, and, and you know they were all waving to him and blowing him kisses and stuff. And but yeah, after this, they run into a diner. Somebody's trying to kill us. Welcome to New York. They run out the back of the diner. They run down into the sewers. They meet a sewer worker who's mm-hmm. like, "We've got to get out of here. The sewers flood with toxic waste every night at midnight." And then <laughs> Jason hits that guy with a wrench, and then she throws toxic waste in his face, and then the floods come, and and that's it. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a magical ending uh, to a magical film. <laughs> uh, but the dog is okay. They come up out <laughs> of the sewer. They're like, "Oh, everything's okay now." And then the dog runs up to them, and it's happily ever after. Mm. Or is it? Because uh, here's another read. This is this is um, this is kind of a radical read on the picture. What if they died in the tunnel with Jason? They were dissolved as well. And when they emerge, they are emerging into the afterlife. That's why they're suddenly okay, and mm-hmm. New York isn't threatening anymore. And the dog is the the, 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 the psychopomp that's going to uh, guide them uh, the rest of the way, uh, so they can continue to traverse the, uh, the the risk and terrors of the afterlife. Well, what does the monologue say at the beginning? There is no escape, nor mm. do we want it. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, those New Yorkers. You know, it's weird. I'm I'm just looking at our page of all all of the Weird House Cinema movies we've done, and I got to say that uh, I, I really enjoyed this episode, and that Jason Takes Manhattan is simultaneously one of the most mainstream movies we've ever done, and one of the stupidest. <laughs> oh yeah, it's so good. Jason Takes Manhattan, uh, and yeah, and it is it is taken for sure. Uh, so if you want to see Jason takes Manhattan, I mean, for starters, there's a very good chance you've seen it already. Uh, but if you haven't, if you managed to get through most of your life without watching it, uh, beginning to end, like, like I had, uh, it is widely available, obviously. Um, I I can't speak to streaming. I I have a friend of mine who recently decided he was going to watch all the Friday the 13th movies and he was going through other franchises as well. And it was kind of having to play hopscotch from one streaming site to another to watch Mm -hmm. them all. So I'm not sure exactly where or how you need to stream this movie right now, but it's widely available as physical media. Uh, They've put out, I think, multiple special Blu-ray collections. I rented a disc at Videodrome off of, I think, the, the Friday the 13th 8th movie collection, which uh, I quite liked because, again, I got to watch two Jason movies for the price of one. A little bit of trivia going back to Part 7, The New Blood. Did you know that this is only one of the possible scripts that could have become Friday the 13th Part 8? Another option was going to have the Tina character, the psychic uh, girl from Part 7, return and do battle with Jason again. Well, I mean, that sounds like a winning concept as well. Uh, but I, I, I wouldn't have, have wanted a world in which Jason Takes Manhattan doesn't happen, though. But Tina was a great character. I would have loved to have seen her again. You, oh, you could have combined them. I mean, it could have been Tina's graduating class. So she's a psychic. She's on the boat. And Jason gets on the boat. They go to Manhattan. Yeah, it could have worked. Yeah. Or then the one after this where they send out the bounty hunters to, to bring him down, if that had been conceptualized differently um, – you know, you could have had Tina be the go-to. Like, who are you going to go to to take Jason down? Go to somebody who has not only survived him, but overcome him with uh, inhuman powers. Do you want to hear one other alternate idea for Jason A? Oh, yeah, hit me. It was the, going to be that uh, the hunk from Part 7, actually it turns out that Part 7 was a dream and <sighs> he was the real killer. What? Oh, that's that's <laughs> awful. I'm glad they didn't do that. Can you imagine, though, if you transitioned from hunk to Jason? I mean, Jason is is 
he is a, a physical specimen, to be sure. All right. Well, we're going to go ahead and close it out right there. But uh, we'd love to hear from everyone out there. What are your thoughts on Jason Takes Manhattan uh, or the, the Friday the 13th franchise in general, any of the specific movies we mentioned in this episode? Uh, let us know. We'd love to hear from you. What do you think about this film's depiction of New York City? Uh, New Yorkers, uh, tourists to the city of New York uh, certainly chime in as well. Oh, yeah. I can't believe they didn't end it with Jason buying a bunch of Yankees gear. He's just decked out head <laughs> decked to toe. Out in it. Yeah, Yankee oh. stuff. That's the thing. There's so much stuff. with that. There's so many ideas that, that you could have pitched for Jason spending, let's say, an, a, an entire film's length within the city of Manhattan. There's so many directions to have gone into. You could do a whole film series just about, about Jason in Manhattan. But Well, in, in earlier plans for this movie, they did want that. I mean, he yeah. was going go to go to Madison Square Garden, go to the Statue of Liberty, all that. They just didn't have the budget. Yeah. And Kept getting scaled back. More and more boat, less and less New York. Well, there you go. But I, in the end, I was pretty pleased with it. So, hey, if, uh, yeah, if you want to check out other episodes of Weird House Cinema, we publish it every Friday in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed. We're primarily a science podcast, but on Fridays we put most of that aside and we just talk about a weird film. Uh, again, I'll blog this up at samutamusic.com. And also we have a letterbox that's L-E-T-T-E-R-B-O-X-D.com account. Our username is Weird House. And uh, I update that as well, adding the films that we have covered and sometimes will cover uh, to that list. So you can also get a nice visual representation of what we've done so far. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other to suggest a topic for the future or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stuff to blow your Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon. Just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And now, for a limited time, get more Cedar Point fun for less with our limited-time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission, parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this bundle won't last long. Save now at cedarpoint.com. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA.
way. We are the voice of NASCAR. The green flag is in the air, and we are underway. The great American race. The Motor Racing Network. NASCAR Cup, Xfinity, and Craftsman Truck Series Racing. Live on your hometown radio station and MRN or NASCAR.com. Martinsville, Talladega, the Chicago Street Course. We have the side-by-side action and last lap passes for the win. Photo finishes. Ryan Blaney will win. The voice of NASCAR, the Motor Racing Network.